This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, offering members-only discounts that can save you thousands of dollars a year. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. The pandemic of misinformation that has come with COVID-19 and discovery and progress in treating migraine. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. A Florida baby is believed to be the first in the United States to be born with COVID-19 antibodies after its mother was vaccinated. According to CBS News, the mother, a frontline healthcare worker in South Florida, received her first shot of the Moderna vaccine when she was 36 weeks pregnant and gave birth three weeks later to a healthy baby girl. Doctors analyzed blood taken from the baby's umbilical cord immediately after birth and before placenta delivery and found that the infant had COVID-19 antibodies. The Bloomberg Billionaires Index reports that Donald Trump's net worth is down to $2.3 billion from $3 billion when he became president. The pandemic he promised would disappear is hammering his company, and so is the Capitol riot that led to his second impeachment. COVID has been hard on the office buildings, hotels, and resorts that bear his name. The fallout from the riot has hurt his brand, and he is currently under a criminal investigation into his financial affairs and family business. Mexico has legalized recreational cannabis, paving the way for the creation of the world's largest legal market for weed. Once the law comes into force, Mexicans can grow cannabis plants and smoke marijuana and also buy and sell small amounts. The government is hopeful the legislation may undermine drug gangs and create a new source of income for farmers across the country. Mexico is the third country in the Americas to legalize marijuana for recreational purposes after Canada and Uruguay. One of the first novels about the pandemic will be a collaborative effort with Canada's Margaret Atwood, John Grisham, and Celeste Ng among the writers. Fourteen Days, an unauthorized gathering, is set on a Manhattan rooftop in 2020 as the virus spreads worldwide and the rich are fleeing the city. Novelist and Authors Guild President Douglas Preston came up with the idea as a way to raise money for the foundation. The 81-year-old Atwood is editing 14 Days and helped recruit a wide range of contributors It's tentatively scheduled for the spring of 2022. A British pensioner has to pay a hefty bill after discovering the ruins of an 800-year-old palace while building a bungalow in his backyard. 81-year-old Charles Pohl wanted to save money by selling his house and moving into a small suite on his property. 
But builders were ordered to stop when they found preserved walls and floors believed to be from a 13th century bishop's palace. Mr. Pohl now has to fork out about $26,000 Canadian to cover the archaeological work and the redesign of his bungalow's foundations. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. There's another scourge that has come along with the pandemic, and it's so bad that the World Health Organization has given it an official name, the infodemic. Tim Caulfield is a professor at the University of Alberta who specializes in health law and has written extensively on debunking junk science and misinformation. The infodemic is all the misinformation that has been spreading uh, about covid since the start, and it's just absolutely been remarkable. There is so, so much misinformation out there. And the phrase, the infodemic, was actually coined by the World Health Organization over a year ago, really to describe what's going on. And I actually love the term because, you know, it's about information, but that term also hints at the harm that is being done. And, and Libby, there's so much harm being done. You know, this misinformation is causing hospitalizations, it's resulted in death, it's resulted in confused health and science policy, it's it contributed to stigma and discrimination, and, and it's also just added to this chaotic information environment that's made it more difficult for people to tease out, you know, what's real and what's not real. And of course, of course, in the context of vaccines, we know, and evidence has backed this up, we know that misinformation is doing real harm. Without spreading the lies, what is the worst bit of misinformation and how do you correct it? So, I mean, there's so many to pick from, right? There's been misinformation about the pandemic broadly from the beginning, whether you're talking about this idea that it's caused by 5G technology. No, it's not. You know, the idea that it was, you know, caused by Bill Gates. <laughs> no, he did not cause this. He doesn't want to put microchips in everyone. What's really harmful, I think, are are the the bits of misinformation about the vaccines that just introduce some doubt. And so a good example of that would be the idea that vaccines are associated with infertility. No, they're not. No evidence to back that up at all, not even really scientifically plausible. Uh, Another good example is the idea that vaccines change your DNA. I'm sure you've heard that one. Again, not scientifically plausible, not true at all. Debunking does work. So countering these kinds of uh, this kind of misinformation really does work. It may not feel like it because there's just so much misinformation out there, but it really does work. So what we need to do is we need to get on social media. We need to meet people where they are and debunk these myths. Is social media the main venue for this misinformation? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And the short answer is, Yes. <laughs> of, <laughs> yeah. course, of course, it's complex. It's complex. But, but this really is largely a social media phenomenon. And we've been studying this at our institute during the entire uh, pandemic. Yes, misinformation is coming from other places and it spreads in, in a variety of ways. Uh, but this is largely a social media phenomenon, and there's been a lot of studies that have, uh, have, have demonstrated that. In addition to that, Libby, there's been interesting research, a study from McGill, for example, that found that individuals that get, their, that get their information from social media 
more likely to be misinformed, more likely to believe misinformation. And so that's important knowledge to have because that tells us where we need to go, right, to fight this misinformation. Here, here. They should listen to the radio more. <laughs> you know, we know that this anti-vaxxer movement is a big problem generally, but how much are they responsible for the misinformation? I think they play a big, big role. And again, there's some evidence to back this up. There are individuals, for example, that have been called super spreaders. So individuals that have played a disproportionate role in spreading the misinformation. So people like Robert Kennedy Jr., Andrew Wakefield, Del Bigtree, these individuals are, have been unfortunately very successful at spreading misinformation, harmful uh, misinformation. But in addition to that, people like Donald Trump, you know, there was an interesting study out of Cornell that found that 37.9% of all the misinformation associated with COVID had some connection to Donald Trump's wow. messaging. You know, that's incredible. Right? Well, he's incredible. gone now. Yeah, the former president, Donald Trump, I like saying that. Uh, so really, really remarkable. Um, so yes, prominent individuals are playing a dis- disproportionate role. There's a lot of confusing information, and the information keeps changing all the time because of new evidence. That's the way science works. But for a lot of people, that is really difficult, and they can't wrap their heads around it. You're right. And and unfortunately, those who are spreading misinformation are those who are trying to promote distrust. They leverage that reality, right? And, you know, the mask people, probably daily, maybe someone sends me a note about how the government changed their minds on masks. That's exactly what you want them to do as the science evolves, right? As you pointed out, you want public health authorities to be nimble. You want them to be able to adjust their recommendations as evidence emerges. Uh, so that's a critical, in some respects, that's a critical thinking lesson that we need to teach people. But it also goes to how important it is from a science communication perspective to communicate the degree, uh, scientific uncertainty, right? And I, perhaps we got that wrong early days. You know, perhaps we should have been more careful how we communicated about things like masks, about asymptomatic spreading, uh, in a manner that highlighted and primed the public to recognize that, you know, science is going to change on this. And as science change changes, so, is our, so are our recommendations. I want to talk about the AstraZeneca vaccine. So we had this situation where a bunch of countries in Europe first said they don't want to use it on people over 65 because there wasn't enough evidence that it worked on them. Now, just as two big countries, France and Germany, changed their minds and said it's okay for people 65, our immunization panel here said, nope. We're not authorizing it or we're not recommending it be used on that population. Then they revisited that. And, of course, they revisited that and said it's fine for people over 65, just as a bunch of European countries said uh, we're pausing it because we're there have been some reports of blood clots. Now, the European regulatory body has turned around and said no problem with blood clots. It's fine. It's fine for everybody. But but it's difficult for a lot of people who are just thinking, I just want to avoid that one. How do you avoid that? And and should our, in terms of our, uh, of NASI, I'm thinking, you know, shouldn't they be a little more also conscious of timing and, and communication? And I think it does highlight the complexities of science communication 
in this in this context. But let's start big picture first. Let's start big picture. The big picture is these vaccines remarkably effective. I, I mean, this is like the moon landing. I don't think it's celebrated enough how incredible the science has been. Then you have something like the AstraZeneca confusion. And, and that's because this is complex and the evidence is still emerging. And we want to make quick decisions because we want to get as many vaccines out there as we can. So I think that that's what's fueled the less than ideal messaging. Bottom line is we've got to get better at communicating this stuff to the general public. And I think this is going to be one of the lessons we learn from the pandemic. Dr. Tim Caulfield, thanks so much. Thank you. That was Tim Caulfield. He'll be one of the speakers at the Vaccine Summit presented by CARP on Thursday, March 25th. To sign up, go to carp.ca slash vaccine summit. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, another problem that is all too common, migraine and the progress in treating it. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, helping you unlock money you didn't know you had. Members-only discounts that can save you tons. Find out more at carp.ca. It's an all-too-common affliction that affects more than 3 million Canadians, mostly women, and costs the economy billions in lost productivity. But there's been progress in treating migraine. To mark Brain Health Awareness Week, I talked to Peter Goadsby, professor of neurology at UCLA and one of the winners of the 2021 Brain Prize. Migraine uh, is very common. Uh, the best estimates from the World Health Organization is that it affects a little bit more than a billion people every year. As we speak today, three million people in the world will have a migraine. The population prevalence, it's about the same in most parts of the world where it's been studied. So in a year, about somewhere between 15 and 18%, maybe nudging 20%. So one in five adults in Canada, for example, or Ontario, will have a migraine attack. The frequency varies, that prevalence varies uh, with age. The most prominent group are affected are females, where at, by the age of 40, about one in three adult females in certainly North America, Western Europe, where it's been looked at, one in three adult females will have had migraine in the last year. Why does it affect women more? The, the bland answer to that, if I could say it that way, is estrogen. It's clear that the proportion of boys and girls is about the same, one to one. The number of women affected increases when they start having fit the periods. And peaks at three females for every male at the age of about 40. And then migraine frequency, migraine prevalence reduces with menopause. What we think is the basis of that is cycling estrogen. So the variation in estrogen levels during the menstrual cycle. Many women will have experienced worsening of their migraine around the menses. So we understand it's to do with estrogen. What we don't understand is what estrogen is doing to the brain exactly that causes that. It's been very poorly understood in the past. What distinguishes a, a migraine from a garden variety headache? Migraine is more than headache. Migraine is a 
pan sensory disturbance. So it involves more than pain. It involves light sensitivity, sound sensitivity, sensitivity to smell, sensitive to head movement, um, concentrational cognitive thinking is clouded during a migraine. So migraine is headache plus a whole range of other symptoms. Garden variety headache, as you describe it, is headache full stop. You discovered a molecule that uh, contributes to or causes migraines, correct? Yeah, myself and my colleague Lars Edmondson um, did the original work to show that a molecule called calcitonin gene-related peptide, or CGRP in its more friendly incarnation, is really important in migraine and migraine attacks. And how does that help lead to treatment? Well, we showed that CGRP was increased in people who have a migraine, that you could reverse that if you treated the migraine. And so what that, what that suggests is that if you block the effect of CGRP, then you could stop migraines or reduce their frequency. And indeed, that's what's happened. The, what we did led to the development of migraine treatments for the attacks, uh, tablets that you take to stop an attack, or migraine treatments for prevention. At the moment, monoclonal antibodies, injections that are taken once a month or once every three months that reduce the frequency and severity of migraine. Yeah, because the people I know with migraines, it, it puts them out of commission for very long periods of time. So how long does it take to work if you take a pill for it? Uh, the clinical trials will show you that the uh, effects will happen within two hours, that's the standard for uh, to get something to get something licensed. And the preventive effects start usually within a week, certainly uh, for most people within about a month if you start on the, on the preventives. As you say, you make a really good point. Migraine's a highly disabling problem. It's hidden because you can't tell someone's got migraine. If you get on a bus or you're just sitting in a queue at the supermarket and you look around, and you see three females, chances are one of them has migraine, but you couldn't tell by looking at them. It's a very, very common, hidden, and highly disabling problem. What do you want to leave us with about migraines? What I would say to anyone with migraine who's listening, or anyone who looks after or knows someone with migraine that's listening, is there's hope. With science, we're increasing our understanding and we're making the treatments better. If You've had a bad time in the past and things didn't work. And if you're thinking about giving up, don't. Keep fighting on because the treatments are there. Go back, have another look, and don't give up. There's light coming in the tunnel. Okay, thank you so much, and congratulations again, Dr. Peter Goadsby. Thank you. Bye-bye. Cheers. That was Peter Goadsby, winner of the 2021 Brain Prize. That brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.